Welcome to an EG Property Podcast from MIPIM 2023. This session covers the launch of our UK Cities Investor Guide, unlocking the power of public and private collaboration in UK cities. The panel is chaired by Samantha McClary, head editor at EG, and she's joined by fellow panellists Joe Davis, Principal and UK Executive Chair of Avison Young, Patrick Duffy, partner at Shoesmiths, Jules Pipe, Deputy Mayor of Planning and Regeneration Skills, Greater London Authority, Michelle Percy, Director of Place, Newcastle City Council and Invest Newcastle. And finally, Pat Ritchie, Chair of Government Property Agency. Welcome to this session, uh, which is the launch of our UK Cities Investor Guide, which you can find yonder. Please grab one on on your way out. Um, And we're going to be talking about how to unlock the power of public and private collaboration in UK cities. So we're going to explore explore where UK real estate is heading, um, the opportunities and challenges uh, that will affect um, uh, our city's growth and what more we need to do to attract innovation and investment into our cities and how public-private partnerships play a key role in that and and delivering the exciting transformation and regeneration projects that we we want to see across across the UK. I have an expert panel um, joining me today. Um, which I will introduce very shortly. I should introduce myself, probably, and not just assume that everyone knows who I am, which I do quite a lot. My name's Sam McClary. I'm the editor of, of EG, and I'm really happy to be hosting this session. So I'm going to uh, hand over to our panellists very shortly to give us a little brief uh, introduction, uh, who they are, where they come from, uh, and just what they hope to bring to, to this um, fascinating discussion that we're going to have today. So I'm going to um, start directly with me with Patrick. Please do introduce yourself. Should be on. So on, yeah. Uh, Patrick Duffy. I'm a real estate partner in Shoe Smiths, based in Manchester, um, specialising in all aspects of uh, commercial real estate investment through development, public-private investment for overseas, and UK-based. Thank you, Patrick. Michelle. Hi, I'm Michelle Percy. I'm, <coughs> excuse me, director of place at Newcastle City Council. <coughs> Um, and that is essentially um, the strategic part of the City Council, planning, transport, highways, regeneration, lots more to boot, but actually it's about that. How do we make the strong collaborative partnerships that enable the private sector to thrive? Thank you. Joe. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Joe Davis. I'm the UK Chair of Ocean Young, and I also head up the um, planning, development and regeneration. I think for me, one of the key things that Avis and Young are looking to do here is to actually to leverage our private sector, our public sector partnerships, and to ensure that actually our regional connections are then used to forge those strategic public-private sector partnerships to help do the delivery of the sort of work that's being done across all of our core cities. And I find it an incredibly exciting opportunity to be speaking here, but also to be banging that drum that this is where we need to be taking the bit industry. Fantastic, let's bang it loud. Uh, Pat. Um, I'm Pat Ritchie, I'm Chair of the Government Property Agency responsible for all of the Government Office Estate. I'm also a board member of um, Homes England and um, I have quite a bit of experience of uh, city regeneration in that I was Chief Executive of Newcastle for I think about nine years 
Um, and I'm really here from a, a GPA point of view to understand how our investment can work alongside the private sector to drive regeneration and economic strategies in, in places. Thank you. Last but by no means least, Jules. Uh, Jules Pipe, I'm the uh, uh, Deputy Mayor for Planning, Regeneration, Skills and Infrastructure at the GLA in London. Uh, before that, for about 15 years, I ran a local borough in London uh, and currently I'm also on the boards of both MDCs in London. In fact, I was on one of them even before, long before it was an MDC. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. So a panel that will give us lots of insights from different different aspects there. And um, Joe, I, I want to start with you because you talked about really leveraging um, sort of the, the power of the public sector um, and partnership opportunity. And I'd love to know for you, you know, how vital is it that we ha start having these conversations really loudly, banging that drum really loudly? Um, it's hugely important. I mean, that's a really quick and easy answer, but I think I need to Elaborate. give you a bit more than yes. that. I mean, it, the reason why it is so critical, and I don't think it's new, but the, the reason why it's so critical now is the change in the market, and actually that what we've got now is really clear visions of what our councils and what our core cities need to do and want to do but actually to be able to do that and to be able to realize the social value that comes with making good place we have to recognize that that partnership is the only way to do this in a collaborative way and a productive way and that therefore starts us bringing in not just private sector money to forge relationships and partnerships with our public sector but also a wide range of other organizations so you know we talk all about all the time about talent you know bringing our universities into these structures and to actually um, triangulating actually what we're talking about and I think it's really important to um, to uh, decouple regeneration and, and keep on remembering it's not just about making great places it's about how those places are used how they function, how they are managed, but then also what that means to the people that sit alongside it and the people that coexist around it, because that's the opportunities, is unlocking that talent and those people and great, ensuring that their social mobility works. Now, why is that important, therefore, to the private sector? Because if you get that right, you make value and therefore you drive profit. And ultimately, whilst we're all here to change places, you know, we are an estates industry and therefore we're driven by profit. So that's why the public and the private sector partnership is so important and we shouldn't be apologetic, we should be embracing it and accelerating it. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Pat, you were nodding nodding along, along there in, in agreement. Um, for, for, for you, do you think there's this... I was talking about this morning, I'm going to keep going on about this change narrative that we need, that when we talk about place, it isn't really about regeneration, it's about so much, so much more than that. Yeah, I, I think um, on the panel this morning, I think it was Eamon that said that um, you need to think about place in terms of who it's for and what it's for, and kind of having a, a clear, strong vision that articulates that, and, and is about taking people with you, as you talked about, is, is really where um, our, our cities and connected cities need to go because increasingly when you talk about cities you're talking about connections to places in a combined area and so that kind of how, how do cities work with their broader places in a coherent economic strategy that is um, understood by residents but also bought into by the, the private sector 
is really important. And for me, those strategies need to be very forward-looking, addressing things like future sustainability, livable cities, building on the culture of a place that they come out of in a way that really recognises the sort of diversity of places. And, and what's the role that the GPA can, can play in enabling that? Well, the GPA is, is, is investing in a range of different cities, um, um, looking at how you put civil servants in the heart of places, diversifying where the civil service is based, um, so that you've got um, uh, integrated hubs. This might not sound revolutionary, but getting departments in a hub where they're not, there are no boundaries between them, they're working in one place. In a city like Birmingham, for example, is a great way of thinking about policy differently. You get different outcomes because civil servants are sort of closer to each other, breaks down boundaries. I think there's about 13 departments in Birmingham and they all have shared space. So, you know, you've got transport talking to Ofsted and others that sort of, and then also they're, they're part of the regeneration of a, a part of Birmingham where they'll bring footfall, but also, um, you know, are closer then to. Um, the, the sort of policy of cities is influenced by where civil servants are based. And you can see the same in HMRC in Newcastle. Darlington, where you've got um, 1,600 um, senior civil servants, well, uh, quite a few senior civil servants from the Treasury and an, econo an economic hub in Darlington, does really kind of, is a big game changer, not just for that place, but for the way that the civil service operates. Fantastic, thank you. And Michelle, I wonder if you could um, sort of talk to that idea around place being more than just regeneration, it being about a, a feeling, I suppose, and bringing, bringing everyone together and, and the importance of private sector money coming in to help with that, but the public sector really driving that forward. Um, it is. I mean, Pat talked about the, you know, the, the wealth creation of creating spaces for government hub, for instance, and bringing people together. And, um, you know, we, we're bringing them into the heart of the city, so, so up to 15,000 jobs right in the heart of the city. And that wasn't easy, you know, from a placemaking point for you. How do you deliver half a million square feet in the middle of a, a complex city centre? Mm. But actually our vision was very clear about the social value that that will deliver and how that, that will create inclusive jobs, you know, jobs that are attainable and inclusive jobs. And, pl and, and places in our cities have to be about the people that use them. So, you know, placemaking isn't just about great architect signature architecture buildings, it's about the spaces between them. But also, we've got to go further than that, we've got to curate those spaces between them. We've got a, an amazing set of anchor institutions, you know, great power of academic research and world-class academia spinning out into commercialisation, into beautiful buildings. So from a placemaking point of view, when you look at the diagnosis of the architecture, the spaces, the quality of the materials, all done. But actually, what's happening in those buildings and dragging them out and creating the stories between them and, and actually curating the space, managing, I know it sounds ridiculous and it's not, you don't have to be a genius, but managing the cigarette ends, the chewing gum, creating those spaces between them that are curated and doing meanwhile and pop-up and using those as an ingredients. And, and also speaking to our residents, making sure that they understand that that is also for them. There is spaces in our city still now that our residents do not associate with, think it's not like them, 
the civic pride is incredible in our city. They look, you know, but our young people don't feel connected because they think it's not for them. And so our narrative has to be about how do we make sure that our residents first and foremost, because that spreads the word. Mm. And I guess you wouldn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be on any panel without talking about the alchemy of football and, and Newcastle United and what that's done for our city. And there, you know, I do call it alchemy. I talk, it's that sort of the sprinkling of pixie dust that makes people feel hope. Again, that goes back to being who are the people that are using your spaces and how do they feel pride in a city and in a space. Thank you. Jules, does that resonate with you? Maybe not the football so much. And, no. no interest in football whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but place and space, absolutely. That's what it's all about. And, you know, I go on about place and curation all, all the time. And, and place isn't just about about the buildings. We've got to go beyond the red line boundary in these conversations when developments are being discussed. Um, and, and it's about good design, and that isn't about beauty, just about beauty and architecture, which it often ends up being reduced to. It's as much about discussing the people, how places are used, how people want to use them, uh, problem solving. Uh, locally, that's all part of good design of, of, of place and the, and the spaces um, in between. You know, where does well-being fit, fit, feature in this conversation about place and space? It should be uh, should be firmly there. Who, who's the guiding hand in all this? And that because that's what you need in good curation. Uh, a state regen, it's going to be the local authority probably. Um, uh, a shopping centre is probably going to be the single landowner. But there are plenty other other models where, where you don't have that kind of binary choice of who is the guiding hand. So how does the public and the private come together to kind of agree on, on that guiding hand to shape places? And I think there are, there are two big things we need to address, I think, so that we can have that conversation properly. It's, uh, it's kind of language um, and it's capacity, um, capacity within, within the public sector. Uh, which is completely outgunned on, on so many fronts with, 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 the, with the private sector. Mm. Can I just float something? Yeah. Which it's a personal view, but it might be quite conf um, confrontational, I suppose. Um, it's about the community that uses those spaces. So I am a huge advocate um, that spaces should be used. Um, and I have a, had a son who was a very big skateboarder. I love nothing better than seeing skateboarders in a public space and it being populated because I think they are creating a community and they are using a space and we should celebrate it. I know that that's not always the right views, but it comes back to who has the right to a space, what it's used for and how it delivers community. That to me is really important. So it's just a different perspective. Yeah, just from uh, my perspective as well. Um, I obviously, from the legal side of things, you, when you're looking at sort of the title to a, a part of a, re, a, a town that's been regenerated, it, it kind of tells a, a story, a historical story of what was there in the first place. It could have been an old mill, and then it will have been developed for the workers of the mill, etc. And then you can see the sort of mill owners have built the bigger houses in the suburbs, and everybody's moved out. And that's typically the history of most of our cities, actually, in the UK. And then what's happening now is that obviously it's become quite attractive uh, due to sort of re regeneration and enterprise to move back into the city centre. So you've got skyscrapers. Etc. All, all very well, usually filled by young professionals paying very high rents or you know paying very high premiums for them. And I think the problem we're going to have is that once these young professionals or maybe become couples, whatever, want to have a family, 
they then decide to move out again to the suburbs. So we've got a rolling cycle of people who do live there for a short period of time, but it's not actually their home. For instance, we don't really have any schools in, in the city centres. It's so important, schools, GP practices, um, you know, wellbeing centres. We need to actually provide a lot of the, the peripheral places that people can go so they can feel at home so the regeneration will last for a generation. Sticking with you, Patrick, I just want to come back to this gui guiding hand piece and just how how do we ensure, I suppose, that there is a guiding hand in, in everything that we do? And I, I wonder, um, from your perspective, from a legal perspective, when you are having conversations between public and private to try and um, create, create a place to yeah. get that investment, to get what the owner of that place understands that, that it needs. How, are you finding that those conversations can sometimes be challenging or are, there, are they getting easier? What's, what's the situation? Yeah, I mean, they are getting easier because, as Pat said, um, a lot of the documentation we do now has a vision definition within it. And the vision governs everything from the, the, the uh, management strategy for the business plan strategy, and it all goes back to the vision, to the extent that it's kind of intangible a vision. But if you, if you can all agree at the start of a process what your vision is for an area, then you can keep referring back to that in your documentation. And it might be that the local authority takes the lead in respect of um, the, the sort of public open space, but it, it could be that it's actually a, a management company of all the different owners. And if the owners are residential, you know, flat owners, or they could be the owner of a shopping centre next door, as long as they're all on the same board and they're all working to the vision that's set out in the document, then the guardian hand is always there, really. And how, how important is that that governance? Maybe, Joe, you can um, talk to this in, in, you know, in enabling that too. You know, you talked about skate, skateboarding there, which I, I, I think is really cool. It does bring people to a place. It's an entertainment and a community for, for kids, maybe some adults as, as well. But how important is that that people can understand that we have that sort of governance there? I mean, I think governance is, is really important for two reasons, and there's, there's, there's the starting point that we've just touched upon, the purpose of those legal documents, the speed and the pace and how actually those public-private sector partnerships are governed, and how actually the procurement of those is governed, that's really, really important, because you need to get to a point where there's a confidence between that partnership that actually this can be happened and that it will see through the lifetime of the politicians that are there at the time. That's a really important governance piece. The second piece then is actually how is it governed so it's felt like it's owned by the community that live with it. And then that needs good management governance from a, from a uh, property management perspective, but not just of the open spaces, but actually of the, the buildings themselves and actually how is that governance dealt with um, at, a, at a very, very local level. And that's where you really need to engage the community, but also the, the outer community that's going to be interacting with and it's going to be connecting with it. Because if you don't create that, you're just creating pockets of regeneration rather than a cohesive change to the city, which is where the football piece comes in, isn't it? It's yeah. the ability of, the, of Newcastle and how it's actually changed a much bigger area has been phenomenal in terms of success. And it's, it's, it's it, it, it isn't easy, though. No. It isn't. It isn't really. I mean, if you think about it, Newcastle has, um, has some of the high, highest proportion of students, I think, of any other northern cities. And they're a massive asset to the city. But every year they kind of move in en masse to Jesmond and then they move out en masse. And there are always, you know, Michelle has to deal with it now. Luckily, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, there's a kind of, there's always the parties at the start of term, the, the community, you know, but they make the place vibrant. Yeah. They're about why, why the place is like it is, but there's a sort of tension there that often the local authority gets 
dragged into really kind of dealing with and managing. And, and you can see that in, in Regen and in other things. It's, it's about how you, you broker conversations, I think, around some of that, that, those diff- difficult tensions, but with a view to helping people kind of coexist and use the space. And are there any examples of where that's worked very well? Maybe some examples where it hasn't worked as well. You don't, I mean, I'd love you to name names on the where it hasn't worked, but you don't have to. <laughs> I probably won't um, name <laughs> names, but I, I, where, it, where I think it's worked in different, there's two extremes. I think, I think King's Cross is an interesting example of how that's become a place where people dwell, there's a different mix of people, and I think you have to have housing, employment, space, and all of that mixed in, and I think there are good examples of, of, of similar in, in sort of Ancoats in Manchester and other places. But I, you know, in terms of Newcastle, one of the more interesting places is, is the Ouseburn in Newcastle, which was kind of old warehouse, uh, the mouth of the, the, the ooze runs into the Tyne. And that's now a really sort of trendy, interesting area with outdoor space. And the council, in a way, stood back from that and let it happen. And it you know, didn't get too involved in setting master plans or all of that. So it was about a sort of creative mix of people who wanted to do something different in a neighbourhood. And now it's one of the most trendy, interesting places to live. And there's a bit of it, it was almost sort of stepping back and helping it and nurturing it, but not running it, if you see, that, that's the part of the success there, I think. Yes, Michelle. Um, that's absolutely right, and actually you won't know this story yet, but um, what, what happens is, after that, because we did, we stood back, and it's a great space, it's, you know, artists, community, um, residential, intergenerational, there's a city farm, there's Stepney stables, it's, it's an amazing space. But of course, scroll forward and it's really doing well, it's organically growing, it's, you know, a real, it's got its own personality as part of the city. But, but the, the farm contacted us about, and this just shows you what ends up happening back in the public sector, is that the farm contacted us about six or seven weeks ago into, into my property team. Um, to say, you know, there's lots of there's lots of fields around us or a couple that we'd like to use for grazing, but they're in your ownership. And I was like, great, you know, grazing, it's brilliant. And of course, it then goes to lawyers. Sorry, then goes to lawyers within the public sector, and they all go, grazing rights. Mm, that's going to be really tricky. And why is it going to be tricky? So there, there is a bit of you know, regeneration continues. We have to keep refreshing our principles around it. And it's exactly the same in communities that you're creating, that you have, you, although you might step back and we have to know that it's our role in the public sector to engage and to enable the private sector and bring them in to fill those gaps because the resourcing gap and capacity is such a challenge right now and they can bring lots to it. But we also must know in the public sector that our role as a custodian and a guardian of that and that original vision that goes back to the governance of being very clear of everybody's role in that and what it's doing and being able to revisit it because you find that they're you know filed away in some dusty old archive mm. and you get new new uh, officers arriving who have a completely different view of the world and then it, it's slightly the d- dynamic changes so the governance and being clear about the leadership and the vision that everybody knows what their role is and then continues that role and that's the key and you know we, we're getting it right probably 80% of the time but it's just that little last bit of it 
Yeah, I, I was just sorry. No, apologies. Go, I'm, just gonna, go. I'm not having a go yeah. with lawyers. Have a go with lawyers. Yeah. I was going right. to say, can you pass me one of those grazing licenses? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, something Pat said actually. Men you mentioned Ancoats in Manchester, which is where I'm actually from, and my family was slum cleared out of Ancoats in the 1970s up, up to North Manchester. Um, and when I used to say where I was from, it was I was always a bit embarrassed to be honest. With you. Now, if I said I was from Ancoats, I think I was some sort of duke. It's like you really changed, but I do think. Um, spot regeneration and having limited horizons as the extent of generation is an issue and because in Ancoats itself certain parts of it you know you've got a Michelin star restaurant now you've got fantastic retail leisure but if you go sort of a hundred yards you're into one of the most deprived areas in Europe and unfortunately we can all sort of you know sound, sound the clarion that we've regenerated Ancoats but unless your vision goes for the whole of that element of North Manchester then it's not really going to be true regeneration. It's going to be resentments, etc., and social deprivation. So, yeah. Um, I want to I want to stick with the um, idea of stepping back actually to enable things to to come forward because I think that's really it's really interesting. And when we talk about um, you know collab collaboration, sometimes it's about knowing when not to not to step in, isn't it? And I, I wonder what gave what gave you the confidence as a as a council to say. We'll, we'll just um, step and look back and see how, see how this goes and give that power to, to the community. It was absolutely about confidence, absolutely about knowing the partners, looking at their track record, um, and knowing that they were in it for the long term. So this wasn't you know, what we would call a smash and grab. They're in and they're out and, they're, and disappearing. They are in it for the long term and they're passionate about the city and the region. That doesn't necessarily need to, they don't necessarily need to be regional, though I have to make that point, um, that, that we've worked with lots of developers um, and, and finance institutions who are national and international, but absolutely understand the quality of place and the delivery and their role in that is, adds, adds value. So it, it, it's about b building really strong relationships and trusting them. So it comes back to human beings, you know, who do you, who do you like to work with? And, and trusting your instinct, I do that a lot, you know. And um, uh, under Pat's leadership, Pat was, you know, Pat, sorry, I'm talking as if Pat's not in the room, but Pat's leadership. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pat's leadership was one that was about trust your instinct and keep going. And until I tell you to stop, then keep going. Because if that's the right thing for the city and you trust the partners you're working with, then it'll come right. Um, and there is something about that whole trust knowing your partners and knowing they're in it for the long term. Pat, anything to add? Although you've been picked up already. Sorry? Anything to add? Um, I, think, I think there is something about... Um, the particular example in, uh, in Usburn was it was led by a very strong community trust and then the developers kind of came and worked with that community. And, um, so there, there's something about, I suppose, different ways in which you take um, regeneration forward according to the grain of the place. Because a different approach in the Newcastle brewery site, you know, where you had you had a brewery that had to be cleared, it was partnership between the university and the council and, and, and eventually legal in general, the RDA were in there until they got abolished and it kind of survived through all of that in a, a long term vision. Mm. But it was about keeping that long term view and driving it forward according to the place. I do, however, think that the, the point you were making about um, communities and and the benefit to communities from um, 
regen we do need to get better at. I do. I think. I think devolution has a, a something to play here in that if you can kind of look at planning skills and um, involving the community early, but but linking that to long-term opportunities for families and for younger people and plan that in as part of a development right from the beginning. See, good examples of that. I did a peer review of Manchester and there were some really interesting examples where they've done that you know, through digital and other means. That, that really is then powerful because you're making those links into the future generations and it's built into the, the whole process. Mm. Jules, is, is there some, some London examples to throw in there as well where you've seen s- similar, similar work? Well, Pat's already stolen. Pat's already stolen uh, uh, King's Cross. Um, so I, I suppose I'd I'd, um, I'd flag up something that I've got my hopes pinned on, which is the Royal Docks. An awful lot of work that we put into the Opportunity Area Planning Framework. There is, uh, you know, that, that was probably the, you know, we've got about forty-seven. I think it is opportunity areas. Some of them are almost completely built out. Some of them are just ideas and nascent. I think the the, the Royal Docks one's a good example of of where. It's, it's been the best example so far of, of, of engagement with local people and help uh, and with the help of local, local people design what they want to see uh, instead of it being ah, OAPFs, that's the thing that you're trying to thrust on us and force us to build 30,000 homes that are 25 storeys tall and we don't want, whereas I think now we've got a document which is more uh, more owned and, uh, and, and welcomed by, by the community still it's got a quite a heroic range of, 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 of demands on the area of, of, for space in terms of, in terms of height for resi and, and for commercial space but um, I think uh, there's a lot less hostility because the, the way the GLA and the borough engage with the local community. But I, I do think that, I mean, it's interesting I think that we're concentrating a lot in this discussion about those, those big schemes, mm. you know, the big visions, whereas an awful lot of development certainly that comes across my desk is scheme by scheme, plot by plot. Um, and I go back to the remarks I made at the beginning that I think the partnership, because the partnerships that we're talking about are those partnerships where they're great and you've got a board and everybody's kind of signed up to a vision. And then you've got those partnerships which make local government suspicious, which is where they're trying to offload risk onto the private sector and the private sector's desperately trying to... Well, they want to, they'll sign the bottom line, but they're hoping that something's in there is going to get them off the hook on the risk. <laughs> so, so, so they haven't got a good reputation with the local government. But I suppose I'd think of them in wider terms about what kind of partnership as a whole we could create with, with the built environment sector and local government. Uh, to get over those problems of language and capacity that I, I mentioned at the beginning. Um, sorry if I'm about to alienate all the consultants in the room, but um, we have an awful lot of planning consultancies. And I'm sure you'll all continue to be needed and no one's going to be put out of work. But I just <laughs> mention that as an indicator of how poor the understanding is of politics and local government within the development sector, despite the development sector having to negotiate this for the last how many decades or a century, yet, yet we need these interlocutors between, between, between the private and the public to, to, to smooth away, and I think that is incredibly um, I- indicative. You know, we, we need to work to you know, have a meeting of minds in establishing common goals, um, particularly about well-being going forward, particularly in the wake of, um, of COVID. 
And I just want to touch on the role uh, on, on capacity as well. Um, we just uh, completed our latest place shaping survey. Every two years, we ask all the boroughs in London, all the LPAs, you know, how how is it for you, um, uh, 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 and give us some numbers. Um, and it's a, we're at a worse place than we were in 2014. It's continuing uh, to get worse. Ironically, it's some of that is because they're going to the private sector, uh, particularly in development management control. Um, the high point though is public practice and uh, any private sector firms in here, please go online and, and search for public practice. We've placed 200 private sector individuals from the built environment into the public sector in the last few years. It's just about to expand into the north as well, hoping to do about 30, 40 a year to start with um, um, elsewhere in the country, um, to build that capacity so that there's a, a more a richer conversation that can happen between the private and the public sector. Fantastic. Can I just come in on uh, public practice actually, which uh, I'm pleased that you touched on it, because we've got three public practice um, candidates working within our planning team. I can't tell you how transformational it's been, because not only does it bring capacity, but it brings fresh eyes and it brings a different approach to the way that we do things. So our, you know, our planning team have gone from being a management control part of the organisation to a forward thinking. I mean, not, not, not quite all the way there yet, and it'll take some time, but public practice has helped us on the way because they're talking about bringing precedent research, valuable critical knowledge, but also they're constructively challenging us. And so through that, we found capacity, knowledge, expertise, and the byproduct is that it's really re-energised my planning team. They all now feel a commitment to being in the office, working alongside each other. I mean, who knew planners wanted to be together and talking? And so, um, so that has really helped. And that, that the capacity issue that I know we're all struggling with through my property teams, major projects, all of those. Working in this way is, for me, is the key to success because you've got all of the access to that skill. Um, but you also can land it well, you're right, with the politics. Because the politics are such, certainly in the lens that we're working in, is um, outsourcing is bad. And yet we can't deliver on the projects that we've got because we haven't got the capacity. So doing it through this route ticks all of those boxes but it also allows us to work really closely with the private sector in order to do that. For full disclosure, I've just stepped down as chair of public practice <laughs> for five years. But, uh, but just, to, just, just to wave the flag one more time, I mean, of the 200-odd people we've placed, 90% of them have continued in the public sector after their initial term has finished with the year's term has finished with the local authority because they can see the kind of dynamism and the excitement and what they can deliver in, 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 the, public, in the public sector. So, uh, and I, as I say, I urge people to take a look because you can become sponsors and involved in public practice that can help it go from strength to strength. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's in the private sector's interest to bolster the public sector because it's not about, it's not, it's not shouldn't be an adversarial relationship where you benefit from being strong and the public sector being weak. Any sensible person. In the, in the built environment sector knows that actually if it's more equal you can have a much more productive conversation. Should have been on our pitching session earlier, Jules, that was great. Um, Joe, you I've, have to I've come got, back yeah, on that. As the planner of the panel, I feel the need to respond to this. And, and, and nothing that's been said, um, I don't disagree with. 100% recognise and we're big advocates of, of the approach at Avis and Young. There's two things I think we've got to think about of why we've got our planners into this point. 
And I, you know, I came out of like planning college with the belief that I could change the world and make a difference. And I think planning has lost its way. It should be, let's say yes until we have to say no, rather than saying, why can't we do this? And that mindset has to change. But it doesn't just have to change in the private sector. Let's be really bad. We're doing an amazing job in the schools. But we have a responsibility in the planning schools at the, at the university level. So they're actually coming out and wanting to be planners because what I learned in university about wanting to change place, all of the things I'm now passionate about, I just don't feel that we're making those points strongly enough. But we have to turn the dialogue. We have to turn the dialogue of the press that wants to bash planners because you know, there's so much criticism. And then we have to change the dialogue of the people within the business who want to, uh, within planning, who want to make a difference. And the final point, and the re one of the reasons is, maybe we need to change the legal system because what happens is once you've made strong decisions, those life-gaming changing decisions that make the difference to those areas, there's the, there's the JR challenge by the communities who don't want to see development, you know, and we've got to be really straightforward and that's a, that's a factor in the inability for us to be ambitious as a, as a planning profession in the public sector. I love it when a conversation goes in a completely different direction <laughs> to what you what you expect. Uh, but I really would like to agree with Joe on, on that. And I, but I have to say that it's in the a much wider, bigger context of the denigration of the public sector and public service in the country over decades. This isn't a party political point. Parties of all colour have either reduced local government or gone around local government, sometimes with good reason. I once ran a borough that was absolutely the poster child for why you should ignore local government and go round it, but it turned itself round in a decade to be one of the reasons why you should go through uh, uh, lo local government. Um, but, you know, you go back to the days, and it's, I know it's a cliche, but you look at Birmingham and Chamberlain, and it's about, you know, bold leadership of place. If you feel beaten, penniless, and, and, and without the powers and, and the levers that you need, uh, then it becomes a bit self-fulfilling. And I think, sadly, a lot of boroughs across the country do, do feel that way. And that's not a party political point, because I think this has been going on for about 30, 40 years. Mm. Thank you. We need great, sorry, greater devolution and particular fiscal devolution. Absolutely. So we've got about seven minutes left. Um, any questions out in the audience for our panel? You can ask them absolutely anything because they went off, off topic, which is great. <laughs> uh, so there is a question from Kat right at the back. Thank you. Um, I'll try and help Sam out and bring the question a little bit back to investment. <laughs> um, and I, I want to pick up, I think Jules used a really interesting word, which was the idea of the kind of interlocutor. You know, who is the person that is doing that translation between the public and the private sector? And it's obviously quite a, you know, a dominant theme here at MIPIM. I guess what I'd ask Jules, but actually everyone else as well, is who does best play that role? Because it's not planners, let's be honest. I love Joe and I love planners, but it's, you know, it's so much more than that when it comes to the built environment sector and it does straddle public and private. But um, who does that? What, at what scale do they best do it? And also at what time in the process as well? You know, planners aren't necessarily involved always right at the beginning. It's often when things get down to the pointy end. So who should be there at the outset of shaping those propositions for investors? Should be happening right at the start. I mean, when, I mean we, we run a pre-app service at the GLA and if we're very happy for just a few thousand pounds to uh, have people come through the door with a map with a line on it and have a conversation with us with the borough in the room and just saying you know what are the possibilities on this on this plot so it can't start uh, soon soon enough I think as to as to the 
who, who it should be. Um, I think the who, whoever it is, should be helping empower both sides to have the conversation themselves. So, you know, as I say, I don't think any, any consultancy is going to do themselves out of a job. Um, but I, I do think there needs to be those a greater identification on both sides about the outcomes, the aspirations, ideas about well-being, and we move away from the the more how do I meet that bit of regulation and tick the box, and the consultancy acting between the go-between between the planning department, which is just as seen as the you know the the, the bookkeepers of the regulation. Uh, if they haven't got the capacity that, that they really ought to have, rather than, as I say, that richer conversation um, about about outcomes and, and well-being of place and sp- well-being within place and space. Thank you, Pat. Who, who for you? I think it's different in different circumstances. Sometimes it's a developer who understands the public sector. Sometimes it's kind of people in in cities or in councils that are able to work across both public and private. And that can be planners. It can be you know staff in 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 directorates. And there's a range of different sorts. So it can also be good investors. Um, so it it comes from different. Um, Backgrounds. The, the thing I think that is the most important thing is that you get people who can understand each other and each other's worlds and work in that space in between. And I, I, I think there are fewer of them than there used to be. And we need to find ways of creating um, that capacity that can work across both. I mean, Homes England has a role, you know, is able to provide that kind of bridge um, between development and and kind of communities there's you know the combined authorities cities have have worked hard to protect their capacity it's never easy protecting you know direct the development directorates against um you know children's and adults which are statutory so there's something about how we find ways that we protect and create more people that can work and see both sides and, and I've got that experience that they can then pass on and, and develop. Do lawyers have a role in that, Patrick? I think we should run it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do. I mean, probably we should be involved a little bit earlier than we are to explain what the pitfalls and the hurdles might be. I'm thinking particularly around uh, the procurement rules, which can be an absolute nightmare. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure anybody fully understands them. Different authorities are, are afraid of them. Some, some people feel quite robust about them. Um, I, I've had a situation quite recently where we ended up with a, the procurement rules dictated that we had to have a, a agreed set of documents at the time the tender was, was actually let. But we had three different developers doing it three different ways, which meant the documents were completely different. So we got to the tender, and the procurement advice was, we're going to have to redo it again, which is ridiculous. So I think we need to look very, very carefully at the procurement rules. They need to be a lot quicker to be dealt with and a lot clearer to enable local authorities to just have more confidence that going into a partner partnership with a private sector body is not going to breach a procurement rule. And, and my, my one observation is there isn't a prototype. It's about the opportunity, and every opportunity has to be responded in a different way. That's why this is complicated, because actually there's not one size fits all. Mm. Otherwise, you, know, you get vanilla. 
So before I ask my final question, any other out there in the audience? Otherwise, I will hit the panel with one last question. No? Okay. So the title of this session was uh, Unlocking the Power of Public and Private Collaboration in UK Cities. So I'm going to ask each of you for the one thing that you would like to see that helps turn that key and un unlock that power. What, what is it that we can hear collectively at MIPIN? There's a lot of, a lot of people from different sectors um, come together and, and turn the key in the right direction. Uh, and Patrick, I'm going to start with you. I'm obliged. Um, I would... Um, I think it's all down to funding. So I think ultimately, um, obviously, the schemes need to be paid for. And quite often, a lot of the money comes from uh, investors, may not be developer investors, but will be um, investors nevertheless. And I think it's basically bringing, bringing funders on at an early, early state, stage in the game to explain to them what the procedures are, what the area actually is, and what the vision is, and also what the procurement rules mean. I think funding is everything, but we need to familiarise it and we also need to make sure that everybody understands from day one what the process is going to involve. Thank you very much. Michelle? Um, funding again, but from the other, the other side of the principle, I have no, um, my team would hate me saying this, but I have no problem as bidding for funding pots because it makes you look at the vision, the ambition and the outputs and that's really important. We've got to be able to measure ourselves. What I have a huge problem with is the annuality of that, the final position of that, and the lack of ability to stretch that. Because we're delivering complex projects right across cities. And, you know, we, delivering those on time, on budget we can not often do, but delivering them on time is really difficult. And we have no flex whatsoever. We have no ability to talk directly to government to explain why. And they're pretty reasonable, rational reasons. Of course, of course, if we get it wrong, then we get it wrong, and, and, we, and we've got to deal with that. But, but it's that finalised, it, it, it's the sort of falling off the end of a cliff if your funding isn't spent by that particular date. And because it makes you look at regeneration differently because of the way that we have to access funding. Thank you. Jo? So I'm, I'm just going to give three words. I think it's about ambition at all levels, so public sector, private sector, communities. So it's about ambition. I think it's about strong leadership. And I think it's a bit about the Jack Russell mentality, the kind of keeping on going, the, 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 the enthusiasm to keep on seeing something through because this is complicated and it takes time. Thank you. Pat? Um, I would agree with um, what you said, Joe, really, about that long-term leadership and, and determination to keep growing. I do think, though, that we could, we could make it simpler um, in terms of the way that funding joins up. And, you know, if you've tried to kind of bring in transport and then you're looking at, you know, other, other aligning da various different pots of money, never mind trying to look at even the public sector land elements and how they come together, we could make it easier, I think. And, and there's, there's something for government to look at around, you know, you get bits of government arguing with each other about land in a kind of wooden dollars way that's all part of government and so there's 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 something for me about funding and alignment of purpose that needs to come from central government as well as local government thank you jules i'd come back to my line about sort of a greater common understanding uh but both ways because what i didn't mention was you know local under local government's understanding of the challenges that the mm -hmm. private sector 
uh, faces. Um, but the thing is that the, this panel is full of people who have been there, done it, it's the great cities. They know this, but actually that's only a relatively small part of the opportunity across the whole of the, the, the UK. Um, and even perhaps even within the cities, the, the great cities that won't, that the, the projects just aren't big enough to have, to have, have, have this kind of the luxury of this attention mm. and knowledge and understanding. So actually creating a context of public-private partnership, understanding of public-private partnership for the whole UK development industry and the whole of local government to kind of understand and work within. So we're not always reinventing the wheel and having to try and replicate what the, the great cities perhaps find have found easier in the past. And what I was my last point will be the complete antithesis of partnership working and identifying for the public sector the community and social value they want to drive out of projects and for the private sector to drive profit. The antithesis to all that is just relying on an infrastructure levy and a simple taxation of gross develop, development value. That is no way to drive great outcomes for great places. Fantastic, thank you. What a what a conversation. I've, I've written down a few few words as I tend tend to do, um, which makes me think actually it shouldn't really. I know it is difficult, but it shouldn't be that hard, should it, to unlock um, the power of that public and private sector coming together. You know, f funding okay, that can be difficult from time to time, but creating a bit of flexibility in that shouldn't be difficult. We've all learned how to be flexible over the last couple of years, haven't we? Communicating and um, and being ambitious. That's what this industry is all all about, isn't it? And if we can simplify that process so more and more people understand it, more and more people can, can utilise those tools, then that key should definitely turn in the right direction. Um, but thank you so, so much for, for that conversation. Please put your hands together for Patrick, Michelle, Joe, Pat and George.